Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TST Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, we're joined by Gary Turner, the Managing Director of Rico3D for Healthcare. Rico3D for Healthcare is a business unit set up by Rico to leverage 3D printing technology for the development of medical devices. In the last 18 months, the company has received FDA 510K clearance for the development of patient-specific anatomic models, including devices mimicking bony and soft tissue characteristics, with 3D printing technology from Strasis. Throughout our conversation, Turner details the company's additive manufacturing workflows, the FDA approval process, and the kinds of applications 3D printing is enabling in healthcare. We also touch on the potential for 3D printed anatomical models to become the standard of care and how the application of the technology might evolve in the future. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Hi Gary, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. I um, I understand you've been working um, at Rico for a, for a long time, but from what I've read, it's maybe the last seven or eight years that um, you've had a, a greater focus on on additive manufacturing technology. So to start, can you tell us about the work you had done prior with Rico, and then how the move into additive um, in an official capacity came about a few years back? Sure. So I've been with with Rico for over 25 years in a variety of capacities, um, many leadership roles, both you know business development and service delivery in, in North America and Latin America. And most recently, prior to this role, my my responsibility was to create uh, partnerships and alliances with with other companies to leverage Rico's infrastructure. Um, now, Rico is a, a global company and with thousands and thousands of employees in the field. Um, and we began to work with other manufacturers to, to you know, help them leverage that infrastructure, kind of like a force multiplier, um, you know, to expand their business without having to make massive investment in, in field infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I gravitated towards the additive manufacturing space and was responsible for creating partnerships and alliances um, in the additive uh, manufacturing market. Also led the launch as part of that of an additive manufacturing program in Latin America um, focused on the educational space. Um, And then, you know, focused really full-time on additive about five years ago okay. um, and now responsible for the business unit here in North America. Mm-hmm. And so can you provide some context, I guess, into the investment that Rico has made, I guess, from a, a, a time and an effort perspective rather than rather than money into 3D printing technologies and, and you know, what the, you know, what the motivation for that was, I guess. So I'll, I'll speak to the, the scope of my responsibilities, which is North America. Sure. Uh, and in particular, our focus in North America is a, a services-based approach. Um, the concept being that, you know, as we all know that our, those of us who are in the, the AM business um, or in the, the, the space somehow, 
you know, there's been the promise of this of widespread adoption, the use of additive manufacturing, and the benefits of it. But of course, we continue to see a very slow adoption rate. I think across all all industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we felt like, you know, going back to what I was talking earlier about my responsibility for leveraging Rico's infrastructure, that, you know, with Rico's heritage as an advanced manufacturer. Um, with our own use of additive manufacturing and our own manufacturing processes going back, you know, 30 plus years and our, our significant field infrastructure that we could build a program leveraging those strengths and those competencies to help drive adoption and the use of, of these game changing technologies. And so that's what we set out to do uh, starting, you know, again, about six or seven years ago was to build a services based program. Um, you know, through partnerships and alliances with, you know, with technology manufacturers, software developers, et cetera, to, to help drive the adoption and use of additive manufacturing and, you know, in the field. Mm-hmm. And this, this type of, you know, service-based program that you, that you talk about, is that a, you know, a familiar thing within Rico? Has the, has the company in, in other areas and in other geographies and in other industries Develop this kind of business unit before for additive manufacturing or in general just generally yeah as, as a matter of fact um you know one of the the foundational pieces we we're using for this business is rico's what we call our managed services infrastructure mm-hmm. um, the rico employees thousands and thousands of employees that show up to our customer sites on site every day per- performing uh, technical type services, you know, it could be, you know, IT type services, data conversion services, et cetera. We've been doing that for 30 years and, and we're one of the largest um, providers of those services uh, today. And so it's, it's that concept. It's a, you know, it's a, it, it's essentially a turnkey solution for our customers that, that you know, want to focus on their core business and would like a company that is an expert in, you know, again, in, in, depending on the type of service, but is an expert in that service to take on that function for them. Mm-hmm. So it's like an on-site managed service program. That's how we refer to it. Okay. And when Rico was, was looking at additive manufacturing technology and, and healthcare and, you know, kind of setting up the, the Rico 3D for healthcare business, what did it mm-hmm. see as the opportunities with 3D printing technologies in, in the healthcare space? So it probably is worthwhile for me to take just a second to kind of, you know, discuss Rico's philosophy on, on innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, you know, one of the founding principles is we think about the future of our company and, and, you know, then therefore <laughs> focusing to education, or I'm sorry, innovation is this, idea that if we focus on issues that, that, you know, society faces, if we look at, you know, challenges that we as a, as a global community face and focus to, you know, coming up with a solution to solving those societal issues, our business will follow. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with, with that in mind, as you, when we look at the healthcare uh, business in particular, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with, there's, you know, tons of evidence on the benefits of leveraging 3D printing for patient-specific solutions. You know, there's there's many studies that have been published and, you know, papers 
extolling the virtues of, of patient-specific 3D-printed surgical instrumentation, but, but the reality is the adoption rate, you know, the penetration is very, very, very low. Um, so you've got this awesome technology that, that truly changes lives with, you know, with a, a market that really needs it. But, you know, today, in most cases, if you are looking, you know, if, there's, if you want to go to a hospital system that offers 3D printing for these types of applications, you're limited. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of institutions, and they're the wealthier institutions that can afford the investment. But so, so looking at that, we're like, okay, here's a societal issue. We have an opportunity if we can build a program bring that game-changing technology to hospitals across the globe, not just, and it, of course we started with the United States, but, um, you know, it, we could build a program that could truly democratize access through a distributed manufacturing model, leveraging RICO's uh, managed services infrastructure. And I guess from what I've read, Gary, the, I guess the aim and the, and the North Star for, for RICO 3D for, for healthcare is to democratize 3D printing in that industry. Can you talk me through the challenges in terms of democratization and, and access for a technology like 3D printing in an industry like healthcare? What are the what are the real barriers there that are you know slowing down the the adoption and the application of the technology in this space? So there are there are quite frankly several. Uh, I'll say barriers or roadblocks or speed bumps that an organization or a healthcare institution would face to set a program up. You know, first is really just the the access and the conversion of that data. So, you know, if you're going to do any sort of patient-specific surgical instrumentation, you need to start with, you know, the appropriate DICOM study, which, of course, DICOM studies are, are you know, protected information. So first and foremost, just coming up with a workflow that will meet the security and, and safety requirements of, a, of an institution are not always easy. Um, you know, it may seem, <laughs> it may seem accurate, but still, you know, institutions or are, are, are physicians that are, that are wanting to, uh, you know, create this type of solution oftentimes are asking for CDs to be burned and they're sending those CDs through the mail which of course is not ideal um, from a security standpoint. So, you know, healthcare, large healthcare institutions, of course, are, are very uh, reluctant to set up a workflow that, uh, in, that you know, would involve that type of, uh, of a, I guess, dissemination of, of data. But then, you know, another very big challenge that you have to overcome is the conversion of that data into a 3D printable format. Uh, the, you know, the, the term for that is segmentation. Um, and it can be pretty labor intensive. So, again, if a healthcare institution wants to set up a program on their own, they have to have, you know, they have to buy expensive software, license expensive software, and, and quite frankly, train or hire people to do that conversion. It's not, it's not the same as segmenting for, you know, virtual applications. If you're going to 3D print, you have to convert that into a 3D printable file and then ensure that that file is um, is set up ideally and will print. As we all know, 3D, you don't just press a button and three things come out of a 3D printer. You know, design for additive is very important. So, so that, you know, that the, the, the access, so the first piece of, of this is the access to the data, 
and then the conversion of that data into a 3D printable file is time consuming and requires a, a certain level of expertise. Um, and not a lot of hospitals, of course, are going to have that expertise in-house um, mm-hmm. to do that. So that, that's the first barrier. The second barrier, of course, is, is the actual production. Again, as we all know, like I said earlier, you don't press a button and all of a sudden um, a finished model pops out of a printer. You know, you've, first of all, what, you know, the expertise of what type of print technology is appropriate, you know, what are the correct materials to accomplish the objective or the requirements of the, of the surgeon. Um, and then, of course, making sure that the print comes out appropriately, that it's, that it's, uh, that it's dimensionally accurate, the finishing associated with a, you know, the post-processing, the finishing associated with that model. Um, all of those things are, again, it's not, you know, a com- it's not common knowledge. It's not something that you would think most hospitals would just have um, at their disposal, you know, today. So, again, you're talking a big investment of, first and foremost, expertise. And then there's the capital investment of actually acquiring all of the technology appropriate based on the needs of, of that hospital system and what was surgical specialties are probably most common. Um, so there's another, you know, again, challenge there is, is just the actual physical setup of a 3D print program and, and the associated personnel required. So it, it, it's costly, um, it's time-consuming, and, and, you know, there's not a standard program out there that makes it easy to hire people that are ready to do this. Um, and then you have the, the quality side of this. You know, these are medical devices. Um, you know, a, a 3D, just an anatomic model alone is a is considered by the FDA a class two uh, medical device. And as such, it's you're, if, if a surgeon is using an anatomic model for making decisions and, you know, in some cases practicing their surgery, it's absolutely critical that that that, that model matches, you know, back within the appropriate tolerance to the, the patient's actual anatomy. So, you know, that requires a, a quality management system, really. And, and, you know, not many, not many hospitals are, you know, have experience in setting up a, a QMS that would, uh, that would meet those standards and, and accomplish all that. So I think, you know, you've got regulatory quality issues, you have software you know, uh, conversion workflow challenges, and then you just have the expense and, and knowledge and expertise of 3D printing itself. I think all of those things combine to make it really challenging for, you know, even one hospital, much less a hospital system with 50, 80, you know, 100 hospitals across their network to um, create a program. So those are, you know, long answer to your question, but those are some of the key barriers and challenges. Of course, there's others, but I think those are the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. And so presumably um, Rico through Rico 3D for Healthcare is <clears throat> proposing its its services as a way of, of dealing with, with some of these barriers. So can you talk me through how your kind of service model and service offering can help, you know, break down those barriers and, and kind of democratize the, the technology for these healthcare systems, you know, to, to get around the, you know, the, the investment and the education as you know, two points that you mentioned there, 
how can you, you guys with your, your capabilities support healthcare systems to integrate this technology and how does that kind of relationship work on a, on a typical basis? Yeah, so let me talk about the workflow that we built, how it functions, mm-hmm. what our our kind of our envisioned delivery methodologies are, and then how that uh, fits into you know hopefully solves the, the challenges or at least reduces the challenges that mm-hmm. that I referred to before. So, what we've built is a a end to end workflow, uh, and I, I should you know I should mention we spent we spent. You know, a couple of years in planning on this, and then we spent, you know, really three years in building out our, our program to make sure that it was robust and effective. So it's not something, again, that we just jumped into and started, you know, <laughs> like ready, shoot, aim. We did, we've taken a lot of time to ensure that what we built would be, would be, the foundation would be solid. Um, so what we built is through um, development work on our side, along with integration with some key partners, is an end-to-end workflow that starts within the hospital's uh, workflow as it exists today. So we've the, the initiation piece of our workflow starts within um, the DICOM viewer system that you know that a surgeon would use or a physician would use today to look at their DICOM study. Um, so what we're able to do is to to embed into that, or I should say program, a, we're calling it the, you know, think of it like the, the anatomic model easy button, um, but just a simple button that a surgeon, when looking at a DICOM study, could request a 3D uh, model. And what that does is that kicks off a request uh, to the PAC system to transfer those DICOM images into a HIPAA-compliant repository where our team then, uh, our biomedical engineering team then takes over and performs the segmentation on behalf of the, of the clinician. Um, uh, then we engage in some, you know, I'll say consulting or, or communication with the clinicians to make sure that, uh, um, that that segmented file meets their expectations. And more importantly, that, the design of the the file will meet exactly what their requirements are. You know, the, the, it's, it's, it's often a little bit of back and forth conversation, making sure that we understand exactly what the procedure that they're uh, preparing for is, and then to make sure that model meets those requirements. You know, for example, they may want multi-material, they may want some soft material, they may want hard material, combination of the two, um, but you know that's uh, that's a, a communication between our biomedical engineering staff and the clinician. Um, we do have a we have um, designed a, a cloud-based uh, case management workflow portal that's used to to facilitate the collection of that information and that communication. So it's easy to use. Again, our objective is to to not require these uh, clinicians to to go outside of. Know, kind of a standard workflow that they're used to today. Um, so, so all of that front end makes it easy to initiate the request, um, and then leveraging the the software and uh, our software uh, components, along with our biomedical engineering expertise, we're able to um, rapidly um, segment those files and then design the ultimate output to meet those that clinician needs. So you've taken all of that that workload off the hands of the hospital and the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, we have two options. 
uh, for production. The, the primary option where we built our program around is we, we drove an offsite production center where we'll actually produce those, those models, run them through our quality management system and quality assurance process, our good manufacturing practices to ensure that those models match um, that match back to that uh, 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 STL file that, you know, that they're um, matched back to what the surgeon is expecting. Um, part of our, our uh, 510K clearance is, uh, you know, the, the proving out of that, the accuracy of those models. And then we ship that model to the physician overnight. Um, that, that turnaround time, you know, again, it kind of depends a bit on the physician's availability. And of course, the size of the print, because as we all know, um, <laughs> 3D printing is not a magic process. Things don't pop out in 10 minutes. Um, but our objective is to have that um, back to the surgeon within a week um, or less. Uh, in many cases, we've been able to do quite a bit shorter timeline, especially if there's emergency. But our objective is, you know, again, with that back and forth and surgeon availability to make sure within, you know, five business days, we're able to get that model back in their hands. Mm-hmm. Now the next the next phase of our offering, which we think is probably the most critical for scale, is what is the creation of point of care manufacturing centers on site at the hospitals, and this is what leverages Rico's managed services infrastructure that I referenced earlier. So, um, you know, it's it's great to be able to have this automated workflow. It's great to be able to produce models centrally and get them out quickly. But but in some cases, especially for urgent uh, cases, you know, being able to produce on site is very important. Plus. You know, if you really want to facilitate the interaction and communication with a with a clinic, clinical team, you know, being physically there or physically close by can help out. So the next phase of our offering is the creation of on-site point-of-care manufacturing centers. So these centers will be staffed by RICO employees. They'll be equipped by RICO. We will bring all the appropriate technology based on the needs of that individual hospital. That site will be registered with the FDA as, a, as one of our medical device manufacturing sites. Um, we'll be able to produce 510K cleared anatomic models on site at the location. And those hospitals, just like if they were ordering these um, to be produced remotely, this will be all as a service. So you take the, the headache and expense of setting up a program off the hands of that hospital. So that, that on-site center will follow our, our quality management system, which has been ISO, ISO 1345 certified. will be staffed by RICO-trained um, uh, employees equipped with the appropriate equipment that's been cleared through our FDA clearance. Um, and again, make it easy for them. So the workflow is the same, but we're able to produce it on-site. And then, of course, our, our team will be easily accessible to the clinical staff if they'd like to just stop by and talk with us. I don't know how much uh, you're able to tell us about the exact technologies you use, but you've mentioned your, um, you know, the, the, the partners, um, the companies that you partner with a, a couple of times. <clears throat> yep. what, what can you tell us about the technologies you're using in terms of hardware, software, and, and materials that make up this, you know, this workflow? Well, as you can imagine, there are, there are multiple technologies um, and software and, and so forth uh, yeah. along the process. But I'd say the two that are, are 
probably the most notable one, which are our public information. Um, on that front end workflow, the, the, our partnership is with a company called Meritiv. Uh, Meritiv was formerly IBM Watson Health. Um, and in particular, we work with the imaging group, which is known as Merge Healthcare. Um, so that's our, you know, the front end of our workflow. That partnership is with, with Meritiv. Um, and then for output, we've partnered very closely with Stratasys. Um, Rico has a, has a long history of collaboration with Stratasys and um, in, in other aspects. And so, um, plus uh, the Stratasys technologies, especially when you look at their, um, you know, their, uh, like the, the digital anatomy printer, their jetting technology and um, capabilities for producing you know, as close as possible um, models that match the, you know, or that match as closely as possible to human anatomy um, make a lot of sense. They've invested a ton of money in, in that digital anatomy technology. So we've, we've, they're our, our primary partner on production output. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> tell me about those applications that you're able to develop them with, with these technologies. Um, I think you, RICO has FDA clearance for anatomical models for bony and, and soft tissue. So can you tell me a bit about those products, what goes into the, the, the manufacture of them, and then, and then I guess the, the function of them, at, you know, once the, the medical professionals get their hands on them, what are you able to do with the with the prints, maybe with different colors that allows a, mm-hmm. a surgeon, um, you know, to prepare or to educate and so on. So maybe I'll start at the back the, the, uh, of that. The, we, we have clearance, as uh, you alluded to, for um, being able to produce anatomic models for diagnostic use for uh, bony applications, cranium maxillofacial and orthopedic. Um, as well as, as several soft tissue applications, you know, in, including things like cardiovascular, uh, genitourinary, breast, et cetera. Um, and with that clearance, our devices are able to be used by the surgeon, of course, with the surgeon's expertise, like always, um, are able to be used to make um, uh, uh, clinical decisions. Or, or surgical planning decisions. So, for example, um, a surgeon may use a orthopedic model to not only plan their surgery, but also we've had surgeons that will will actually cut and kind of practice exactly the, how they want that those cuts to look before or to be shaped before they uh, go into surgery. Um, so, we've we've had surgeons that actually you know practice with the same tools they're going to use in in the surgical suite on these models until they get their cuts exactly right, which of course, you know, can reduce the amount of time uh, in surgery plus the, the potential for error. Um, so again, it's, it's practice, it's, it's planning, uh, you know, planning the approach, sizing of, of implants, all of those things are possible with the use of these anatomic models. Um, and then, you, know, you mentioned education. Without a doubt, you know, patient education is a big is a big application as well. Um, you know, it is of course important for you know to receive informed consent from a patient. And of course, what better way to explain to a patient the procedure than to actually show an anatomic model to them exactly what the plan is, what the issue is that's being addressed, and how they're going to address it. 
Um, so there's a, a big component of patient education. And then last of all, just, you know, if you think about, um, you know, surgeon and, and med school education, it, you know, it, it's very hard for a, you know, for a physician who has not seen a specific anatomical anomaly to really visualize what it will look like or could be. So being able to produce a, a patient-specific model of a specific anomaly that can be shown to, you know, interns, um, med students, um, or even just, you know, you know, surgeons that are new into the workforce, um, you know, as they're working with, uh, with an experienced surgeon, you know, being able to show this is what you're going to see when you get in there is, is also, I think, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the key applications, I think, to, um, and benefits to the use of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when I've spoken to people in, in the past about the use of 3D printing for these kinds of uh, devices, there's a there's an expectation that the use of, of 3D printing for these models, it will become uh, the, the standard of care, I guess, in the same way that, you know, an x-ray is if you, you suspect you've, you've broken a bone in your foot or your arm or whatever. And obviously the medical professionals want to find out before they they do anything about that what are your thoughts on on 3d printing and 3d printing medical devices and anatomical models becoming a standard of care what would it require for that to kind of be a reality do you think at a, a wide scale well you know i can tell you one of the biggest barriers of course is just who's going to pay for it you know because while we have built a program that we think is much more affordable, there is, of course, still a cost. So I think uh, um, insurance reimbursement is a, is a big um, hurdle we need to overcome to really make the standard of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, you know, there's the, the best way to do that, of course, is, is clinical trial. Um, and, you know, there's work afoot um, to try to drive towards some clinical trials, uh, uh, that we can actually take to insurance companies to show them, you know, the the um, you know the the data proving out the benefits. Right now, mostly what you have out there are, you know, are cases that you know that are published that show the benefits, but there hasn't been a randomized controlled trial as of yet in in any you know in any to any great extent that could be taken to insurance companies uh, mm-hmm. for that purpose. So I think that's a big key. Without a doubt. Yeah, because when when I've spoken to medical professionals who are using the technology in the past, I I hadn't quite realized that until these reimbursement codes are developed, a lot of them are are kind of just they're they're using the technology and they're paying for it themselves because they, you know, they believe in it and they they think it helps them to give better care. But that, you know, it's coming out of the, the healthcare system's pocket per se and yeah. and there's a lot of or in some cases the uh, in some cases out of the pocket of that individual surgeon sure yeah right wow yeah okay and that's you know that's going to discourage a lot of healthcare systems and a lot of surgeons from actually delivering a better standard of care which is obviously the whole the whole aim so the whole point yeah <laughs> exactly um so how yeah, do you how no do you question. think we can i guess speed up that process to to make those steps towards getting I guess the the clinical studies done, the the insurance companies on board, and then the reimbursement codes in place. How how can we speed that process up? Is that a collaboration piece where people just have to come together and, and organizations have to come together to to really move this forward? Yes, that's what I was 
that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, the the you know, there there are, oh, there are players in this space that are trying to you know drive this adoption, but because the penetration is so low, you know, I I've had these conversations with my counterparts in the industry. You could ostensibly say, ah, you guys are competitors, but the reality is. Well, you could in one through one lens, you could say, yeah, there's some competition. In, I mean, <laughs> the, if if every surgeon that was performing a surgery that could benefit from these models asked for one today, I mean, there isn't enough capacity even close across the entire industry to to even get a percentage of that. Mm-hmm. So, it, I I 100% believe it's important for us as an industry, for all the companies that are in this space. It's different. You've got software, you've got production companies, you've got medical device manufacturers. I mean, there's a lot of players in this space for us all to pool our resources and let's let's fund these clinical trials to prove it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the that that's how we're going to get there. Is a you know an industry wide effort where we all. Um, work together to make it happen. I think that's the only way. And I, I think we need to recognize this isn't about, it shouldn't, you know, our objective should not be, oh, let me try to make as much money as I can. The goal should be, let's figure out a way to put this game-changing technology into the hands of every surgeon who could use it. And more importantly, every patient who can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess it goes back to your point. It'll pay for itself. Yeah, exactly. It goes back to that point of, address the issue and the business comes later. I, I absolutely. I, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm too idealistic, but that's exactly every day I wake up and I, and I pull up my email or I look at my calendar for the day. The first question, every question I ask is, is this moving that us towards that objective? Mm-hmm. If it does, then it's the right thing to do. And we'll eventually get there. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the other challenges, I guess, if we, if we look at it from a 3d printing perspective has been, um, you know, doing as Rico has done and, and getting that FDA clearance is obviously a challenge and there's a process. What is your experience as a, you know, as an, you personally as an organization um, as well of, of going through that FDA process with 3D printed products? What, what are the, the hurdles there and, and the challenges there for, for a company that's looking to, you know, to build on the use of, of 3D printing for these kind of products? I should mention that, you know, for Rico, this was a brand new endeavor. This was not something we had done previously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rico North America has never worked through a, um, you know, a process with the FDA for 510K clearance. This was, this was new for us. So, um, you know, I've had people ask, well, and <laughs> they've asked the question, well, gosh, how did you do it so quickly? And I will say this, I, you know, on one hand, I'm like, well, that wasn't that quick. But mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I think sometimes if you don't know that something should take a long time, it doesn't, right? You just don't know what you don't. You don't know that it shouldn't be possible, so yeah. it becomes possible. So I'll say this. I, I think the most important thing and the biggest, the critical piece for us was to hire people that understand how the FDA works and what the FDA's expectations are and recognize, you know, especially in this particular space in in the 3d printing for healthcare applications, the FDA is, is wants industry collaboration. So we honestly didn't find the process all that, all that challenging. We, we, 
you know, I had gone into, you know, based on what people had said in the past, oh, this is going to be difficult. It took time. It's very document intensive, but it, we need to have that to make sure that what we're building is, is safe and effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I think the, the process, I didn't find that, you know, I didn't think it was unreasonable. I think that it would help if the FDA could be a little bit more firm on what they're expecting in the future. Um, because I think part of the challenge is there's a lot of ambiguity and, in the use of 3D print in, in 3D printing for for uh, healthcare applications, uh, the FDA has, you know, I don't think is 100% sure what direction they're going to head because you know them regulating point of care is new and different, and so there's a lot of, of questions there. But I think the biggest challenge really is just there's some ambiguity still about mm. what the future is going to look like. My final question, Gary, um, and thank you for, for taking the time today. Where do you expect the application of the technology in the medical field to to go next? What's the kind of you know the next step forward from? I guess anatomical models are some way to being you know an established product. What's next? Do you think for additive manufacturing in in the medical and healthcare space? Well, or the creation of like you know in in orthopedic applications, cranial maxillary facial applications for cutting and patient specific cutting and drilling guides. Um, you're you're beginning to see patient specific or patient matched um, 3D printed implants. So I think you know those things are already in in process. Um, now we're starting to see, of course, the use of of AR and VR. You know, patient specific AR VR. What I really think is, you know, the probably next phase, especially for surgical planning, is the merging of some of these technologies. So you. You know, you could imagine in the future the use of a of a patient specific, you know, three D printed model in combination with an AR application, so that when a surgeon is preparing for or practicing their surgery, they they're not only, you know, holding the physical model, and they're not only looking at an you know a VR or an AR um, you know representation of that of that um, patient, but they could actually, you know, practice what that surgery would, how that surgery would perform leveraging both technologies merged together. You know, perhaps you're seeing what um, blood flow is going to do as you, as you make your cut or, or do your approach. So I think, you know, I really think the the future is is the merging of these technologies together, but without a doubt, you know, we, we know that, you know, patient specific personalized, you know, approaches to treatment of, of people is is how we need to think about healthcare in the future. And so, yeah, what I see is I just see these technologies kind of merging together. That's my opinion, but I think it only makes sense.